Okay. Uh, welcome to the first in a series of American Prospect podcasts called Generations, in which we match one of our senior editors with one of our younger staff and talk about the different perspectives that we bring to politics, and culture, and the news. Star, co-founder of The Prospect and longtime co-editor, and also a professor of sociology and public policy at Princeton. And I'm here via Zoom with Lee Harris, who is a Prospect staff writer. Um, Lee, Lee, when did you graduate from college? So, hi, Paul. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. And um, I graduated in 2020. And I'm especially excited for this matchup because I think we both attended college and um, and graduated in in really kind of historic periods for our generations. That might be a nice way into this discussion. I I um I was at college from 2016 to 2020 and then graduated into the pandemic and and the um, kind of world historic moment that that was into into a very strange economy. Um, and I'm fortunate enough that I still ended up with a job at the prospect um, a couple of years later. And and Paul, you were in college uh, in the late '60s, and we were we were both editors. I think I said of our our college papers during that time. So I'm really excited to talk to you about um, about the period of the '60s and how that shaped your generation. So I graduated in 1970. So exactly okay. half a century before you. And I can tell you that if you if I had thought about having a conversation in 1970 with somebody who had graduated in 1920, I would have thought they belong to like the ancient world. <laughs> I would not have thought I'd have anything in common with them. They would have been in college like during World War One. And so, you know, uh, there's a huge difference in years between us. Um, more than one generation as generations get counted. <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure there's as big a difference, at least as I would have felt in the late 1960s with, you know, somebody who had been in college 50 years earlier. That, that just seems to me like a bigger gap than, but then maybe that's my illusion. <laughs> Funny. Well, so um, I thought this was a great matchup um, for a couple of reasons. One is that and and, and um, Paul, I think we decided to call this um, uh, to title this episode, Do Generations Matter? And um, and and one reason that I thought it was a good pairing is that I think there's a good argument that the Vietnam War generation is the last gen last real generation uh, that we've had, that some of the kind of categories that we use for subsequent generations like Gen X and Millennial and now Gen Z, which I guess I belong to, um, aren't really generations at all. I mean, we should we should get into this. But one reason for that, I think, is that I, I've been trying to think what makes a generation as, as opposed to just, you know, a group of people of the same age. And I think one good candidate is a war or some other cataclysmic event in which people are kind of forced to mobilize together. And, you know, being a, gener a certain age shouldn't make you part of a generation automatically. I think often, uh, you know, being an age, being a certain age can give you the same attitude as your peers because, but maybe that's just kind of a proxy for describing underlying economic conditions in a given period. Now there are a couple candidates, I think, for what, uh, for making the argument that we do have subsequent generations after the famous generation of the 1960s, um, you know, 2008 and 2020 were both big cataclysmic years. I, friends of mine who, millennial friends who graduated in 2008 had this shared experience of entering a, a, a hopeless job market, and I think have been left with a lot of rage and resentment uh, coming out of that. And, um, and my own Peers who graduated into 2020 entered somewhat similar conditions. Uh, and then I, I guess there's also the climate crisis, which we're all kind of facing together, but, but that feels more diffuse and protracted. And I don't know how much uh, that really 
forces people to mobilize together. It's not clear if the shocks of the climate crisis are going to create a kind of shared political sensibility in the same same way that a war can. And even wars, of course, there have been wars since Vietnam, but they haven't had the kind of generation building effect, I think, because we eliminated the draft and, and we started in on these kind of endless wars fought mostly by, you know, I don't know, young immigrant kids in the Sun Belt and private mercenaries and not not wars in which there's a sense of shared solidarity and mobilization, for better or worse, of, of the whole country. Um, so, yeah. so I think I, you hit. Yeah, I think you hit on two very important distinguishing factors, the, the state of the economy, the state of the job market, of economic opportunity. And like when I think of my generation that. Uh, you know, entered onto the job market late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, that was a time of considerable prosperity. It had been for a while, but the previous generation, the people who grew up during the Depression or World War II, they had a very different experience. And then the baby boom generation entered into this period of affluence, but also this period of tremendous social and political change. And so there's there just seems like a very big gulf uh, between my generation and people who came earlier. But I agree with you that some of the others, for example, I can never keep straight what people think are the differences between Gen Xers and millennials. I mean, I know marketing people have all kinds of formula, you know, about about this stuff, but I just can't remember what 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 are the big differences. But from my point of view, there was really a big difference about growing up in that post-war period of affluence, the big generation coming on the scene. Um, it felt like the whole world was centered around us. Of course, that's an illusion everybody has. But really, it was during the 50s and the 60s. Uh, the 50s was a very child-centered, family-centered uh, period. And then the 60s was the year of the sort of ex youth explosion. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, the other thing that I was going to say is, um, one reason I'm excited to talk to you is while I, while I adore you personally, Paul, since we're talking generations here, I, I gotta say, I think there's some generational resentment, uh, on two counts, <laughs> both, um, uh, both, I, I think what, what'll be, um, obvious and expected is is millennials kind of and and maybe gen zers kind of famous resentment of the affluence and stability that baby and, and sense of hope that baby boomers enjoyed and they're not being born into that world but the other reason that i feel you know unlike what you said about people graduating in 1920 i actually feel much closer to people um uh who graduated in the 60s the 60s feel way more immediate to me i, I may be totally wrong in that in that feeling i may have the wrong read of the 60s but one reason i feel so much resentment towards the generation of the 1960s is that i feel like we inherited a lot of um a lot of political mistakes and maybe inadvertent ones or maybe understandable ones um from that period and and particularly this beautiful and inspiring youth movement that gave us so much great culture and art and music also bequeathed us this kind of cultural and identitarian turn in politics that maybe you can you can argue wasn't inevitable or something. But um, but I, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about what it was like to be a student, especially at Columbia in the 19 just the heart of the 1968 student movement, because which was, of course, a global movement, not not just one um, confined to the U.S., uh, because I feel like I, I, I can try to enter into that the mind of students at the time and, and find so much beauty and inspiration and so much that's relatable. And then um, and then in, in my view, it all um, it, it took such a um, the identitarian turn was really a turn inward rather than one towards solidarity and shared political mobilization in a way that I feel has kind of bad consequences that we're still living with today. Well, I think um, I'm not going to try to speak for my generation. That would be presumptuous and uh, completely uh, wrongheaded. <laughs> but I'm sure that um, I wouldn't be the same person I am now if it hadn't been for what was happening around me 
in the late 1960s. And um, and like you, I was a campus journalist. <laughs> uh, and uh, so when these events took place on campus that were really echoes of what was happening around us with the anti-war movement, the black freedom struggle, um, later on the women's and the gay movement, the, 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 these were all things that even if I didn't directly participate in them, they, they shaped my awareness and, um, and involved me in, um, uh, you know, in the struggles about thinking about what, what all this would mean. And, and again, I, you know, I, I probably would have ended up maybe following my father's footsteps and becoming a doctor <laughs> or going into law or something like that instead of, instead of, um, doing what I've done over over the years. So so the the times you know really did um really did matter uh, a great deal um for me. So what did it um maybe tell me the story of being a student journalist at the spectator was it in in 68 like um what was your impression of the um of everything that was going on did you did it um did you agree with it were you moved by it uh uh how did it change your political sensibility? Uh, well, first of all, you can actually uh, find in the library, somebody could find in the library, a book that my fellow editors and I wrote called Up Against the Ivy Wall. And the full, we wrote that right after the big up, uprising in the spring of 1968. Is that a reference? There's the great Jeffrey, there, I guess Up Against the Wall is just a... Um, a phrase, but there's the great Jefferson Airplane song, uh, I think, with that lyric in it. Yeah, I don't think that was what we had in mind in, in 1968, but um, the uh, uh, then also um, I, I co-edited a book with one of my professors, Emmanuel Wallerstein, uh, a book about, <laughs> yes, a book about, uh, about the crisis in the universities. And so you know, I got I got involved very quickly in um, in writing about those issues and and being drawn both into into uh, sociology and into journalism, uh, and and then at, um, you know this is partly a reflection of my feeling um, uh, I wouldn't say guilt, but but um, uh, soon after that I, I I went to work for Ralph Nader. Uh, and I wrote a book called The Discarded Army about Vietnam veterans um, who were the other part of the generation, uh, you know, other than college students and who directly suffered the consequences of um, of the war. You know, so, you know, those, those were those were the ways that I got uh, involved in those in those things and um, and kept on, um, you know, those interests that eventually led me to work with Bob Kuttner and Robert Reich uh, in founding the American Prospect. So it's kind of like the background of of uh, of the origin of this uh, of this whole enterprise. Well, that's absurd. I have had no idea you um, had had no knew, let alone co-authored a book with um, Wallerstein, who's like a, a total hero. Uh, <laughs> well, he wasn't yet the Emmanuel Wallerstein that, you know. But what did it feel like to be uh, on campus? Like, were you out? Um, do you have Do you have a story you could tell, or do you remember? Um, I don't know. Going out as a student journalist, were you interviewing people? As there was the big famous Columbia sit-in, right? Like, were you um, were you taking photos or writing it up? And what was your sense of it as it was unfolding? Did you have any? Basically, I'm actually trying to ask. Um, did you fully sign on to it? Did you feel like you were just uh, drinking it up and watching it as it unfolded? Or uh, did you have any disagreements with the protesters? Okay, so in the spring of 1968, I was a sophomore. I was a reporter covering uh, that uh, upheaval. And um, I, uh, I, I, I wasn't actually entirely sure of what I thought about it all at that point. I was very much against the war, uh, went to demonstrations in Washington and elsewhere against the war, but I wasn't entirely sure about the protests at the university and about the leadership of the um, of SDS, Students for Democratic Society. Uh, so 
uh, in a way, I took advantage of my position as a reporter and observer uh, to um, to try to understand what was happening and 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 what I thought about it. And um, you know, this is now getting into parts of the history that <laughs> that you would have no reason to know, and others wouldn't. But um, the leadership of the of SDS at Columbia um, soon. Um, turned to a revolutionary uh, position. Several of them blew themselves up making bombs uh, uh, later on. And so, uh, no, I did not really, I, I was not part of that group uh, at all. Um, and really what was, there was so many different things happening at that time. And let's turn now to 2020 and your, your experiences at Chicago. But um, uh, there were, uh, a lot of movements germinating at the same time. So there was the anti-war movement. Uh, there was the, the black movement. In fact, the black students at Columbia uh, were part, but a separate part of uh, the whole uprising uh, that took place. They had their own issues, uh, having to do more with the local community um, uh, in that area. Um, and, um, and then there was um, the just the beginnings of change at that point uh, involving um, uh, women uh, and the gay movement, those things were, were all happening around that same, around that same moment. And so many of these challenges that were coming up were so new. And a lot of them, by the way, were very upsetting to the, to the male leadership of the left at that point. <laughs> uh, a lot of what, you know, came out in the in the women's movement, for example, was um, uh, born out of feeling that that women inside the movement were marginalized and not paid any attention to, and so there were these internal frictions on race, and gender. Those were now you used the term identitarian before, but these were, I think, in retrospect, very important and valuable frictions that were emerging that really had to emerge. And really in the long run, the contributions that these movements have made toward equality and justice are very considerable, even if at the moment, some of them you know, didn't make sense or at least didn't seem to make sense. <laughs> um so I, I, I want you to say a word more on that before we go forward to 2020. Um, uh, because I'm going to try to think about the world uh, my generation of college students inherited 50 years later. But what, the last thing you said that um, that they've made that those groups have made considerable progress. Um, would you say a little more concretely what you're thinking of? Okay, so actually, let me give you an argument that I'm making in the book that I'm working on right now. So if you look back at the whole group of movements that emerged from the 60s. It seems to me that the black freedom struggle, the women's movement, and what was then called the gay rights movement, they have made the most important and valuable contributions toward um, a more egalitarian society over this period of more than a half century. And that the new left on the whole really didn't end up making the difference that it wanted to make. The counterculture, I think, really mostly got co-opted. Not everything worked out in the way, certainly didn't work out in the way that people wanted or expected at that time. But I, I think America is a better place. I think the world is a better place as a result of those movements. What, what, but, but, and you're writing a book about this. So, so just in terms of concrete gains, what do you have in mind that, that the, um, the, the black and women's movements of, uh, of the new left, or maybe you would say they were at odds with the new left accomplished. I mean, I think of the, I think for example, um, in the movement for racial justice of the fact that after the 2008 housing crash, um, uh, the racial wealth gap was remained staggering. Um, uh, or, um, or, or the fact that it seems to me like a lot of, uh, maybe I should ask you what what progress you think uh, the women's movement of the 1960s 
has made for women because it seems to me that a lot of the um a lot of the gains have been kind of superficial gains in um representation for professional women um but that uh but that some of the more ambitious and radical thinking around um uh the distribution of child care uh the structure of the family uh, so little of that was realized we we have a more libertinish i guess sexually liberated society whether or not that's feminist i think is up for debate but what do you think are the specific gains that have come out of the feminist movement of that period lee you're entirely right to focus on the things that didn't get fixed <laughs> child care you mentioned you know uh, and the racial wealth gap uh there's still a lot that is worth fighting for to fix and and uh, but <laughs> you have to put yourself back uh at a moment when um the let, let's let's take the question of of what difference the women's movement made so it was just taken for granted um as of the early 1960s that men and women had different roles in the economy because of their innate differences and that if there were differences in the roles they played in the economy that he, what that wasn't even evidence of discrimination it was just the way people are that's how it was thought about so there wasn't even really a sense of injustice about those differences until uh the civil rights legislation the civil rights act in 1964 and the battles that ensued after that, trying to enforce that law. And they made just an enormous difference in the opportunities uh, that women have had ever since. Extraordinary difference uh, in what in, in, in that, uh, uh, that, that, that came as a result uh, of that. And yes, and you mentioned women in the professions. Well, there hardly were any women in the professions uh, before these changes. Uh, take medicine and law, where women now represent, I think, roughly a half or more of of, uh, of uh, enrolled students in, in medical and law schools, and where uh, they brought about, in the case of healthcare, I think very significant changes. Not as much as I would like, but. Um, uh, and and take I mean even more dramatic I think is the case of uh, of gay rights uh, uh, the the degree to which uh, pe gay people lived in fear uh, of uh, having uh, their their private lives disclosed losing their jobs um, this was just taken for granted. Um, uh, in the period before that. And so, um, yeah, I, I think one issue we're going to come to is the question of class differences versus these other kinds of differences. And, uh, you know, at that point, I think people were suffering from a kind of humiliation on the basis of their identity um, that, that made those causes urgent. And at that time, you know, I think many people with our point of view you know, thought that, well, you know, so much progress had been made by unions in, um, uh, uh, in improving the uh, wages and working conditions of, of, of working people, you know, that maybe that at that time it didn't seem quite as urgent. Um, it's not that um, liberals and progressives abandoned their concern uh, for the labor movement, but priorities shifted. And now, now I think, you know, maybe it looks as though priorities shifted too much. <laughs> and uh, and and the those issues of class, you know, really didn't get adequate attention in the years to come. But but really what happened in the 60s, I think, on the whole, I would say was a good turn. One thing I was going to talk about is um the following. So it um I think one um real difference with um 
younger generations right now with millennials and um, there's less data, but with uh, Gen Z as well, is that they seem to be bucking the trend of people becoming more conservative as they age. There's just a good study of this. Uh, Of course, it's always been a truism that, you know, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative by whatever, your 40s, you have no brain. Um, uh, But um, millennials aren't becoming more conservative in the U.S. And then there have also been studies of this in England. Um, Millennials have continued to vote left even as they're now entering their 30s and early 40s. And I think that's um, that's partly explained by economic conditions, by the cost of homeownership, education and child care. But those things, there's a study in the Financial Times that specifically looked at, OK, what if homeownership patterns tracked boomer homeownership patterns? That helps explain the persistence of left wing beliefs in millennials, but it doesn't fully explain it. And you have to look beyond those underlying indicators to kind of like shared experiences and shared values across the whole cohort. So I've been trying to think about how to describe millennials and Gen Zers for this podcast. And I think they are, um, I think they're the beneficiaries of globalization as consumers, both, I mean, both as kind of consumers of cheap goods, but also of global culture <laughs> um, and getting access to a, a very rich world of um, of media, but basically the losers of globalization almost every other way, um, uh, at, you know, as workers um, and as participants in the economy. Um, and I, and, and, and I guess I'd also say that um, whatever I am a little bit trying to speak for my generation because I'm, I'm more arrogant than you are, Paul. And, um, and I think, um, I mean, I think in general, uh, the U S is an extraordinarily rich country, uh, but feelings about the direction that things are headed in often matter just as much as, uh, if not more than kind of net levels of well-being. So even if we're, still the beneficiaries of U.S. empire and enormous accumulation of wealth. And the U.S. remains super rich. I think there's a general sense of being downwardly mobile, um, of of little hope and little opportunity for the kinds of wealth accumulation that the previous generation enjoyed. Um, And there's just a sense of decline and rot, (laughs) which leads to guilt and resentment and a kind of victim complex that older generations have have, um, played on a lot and maybe in unfair ways. I mean, I think they see millennials as kind of fragile and and victim-like, which might be partly right, but I think there are probably structural explanations for it. Um, And kind of resentful desire for the endless material comforts that were available to boomers. And I also, since you mentioned the generation before you, since you mentioned the, the, the post-war generation, um, uh, that generation lived together through extraordinary turbulence and through the depression. But, um, but I, yeah, one, one question to maybe ask is like, what's different between the generate, the, the, the great depression and the, um, uh, not entirely solidaristic, but it seems to me much more solidaristic social mobilization, um, that ensued after the great depression versus the, the more general economic malaise and, 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 um, jobless recovery post 2008. Like why did the depression seemingly produce so much solidarity and, and, um, the whole social welfare state and a a sense of, again, speaking in broad terms, there are plenty of groups that were excluded from this, but, but a period of security and stability when it seems to me that 2008 has done the opposite. Okay. God, there's so much there in what you just said. Uh, so I think it mattered that during the depression, uh, we had Franklin Roosevelt as president. We had a new deal uh, that was um, promising to change the economy and make it work for Americans in a way that it hadn't before. And that also created a basis for optimism, even in those terrible times. Um, that was a time when when the labor movement was rising and um, becoming accepted in, in a way that it had never been before in this country. 
So um, uh, that was, I think, really crucial. There was nothing like that in 2008. So there, there you have um, you know, a severe economic reverse, but without the kind of political and social movement, because you have Obama getting elected in 2008, that did create a certain kind of optimism, but it didn't really result in the kind of social mobilization that took place in the 1930s. But I think I think your point about um, the millennials and your generation um, likely to retain uh, a progressive point of view because the economic circumstances seem very grim and the threats from things like climate change uh, seem very real. Uh, that's that's a very important difference. And if that's right, it says something about the future. It says something important about the future. Hey, it's Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor here at The Prospect. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Prospect Generations, but I also invite you to enjoy our affiliated podcasts. Alexi the Greek and myself host Left Anchor, where we discuss politics, theory, and the left with the best writers and thinkers. You can also join comedian and prospect contributor Francesco Fiorentini for the Bituation Room, the humorous roundup of the week's news with plenty of bitching. You can find Left Anchor and the Bituation Room wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to The Prospect as a Power Level member, you can unlock bonus content for each of them. What a deal! For more information or to sample the shows, visit prospect.org slash podcasts. Let's get back to the show. Totally. Um... I've, I've um, had a lot of fighting words to describe your generation. I'm curious how you would describe mine. Um, but one thing that occurs to me as like a measure of the level of hope and optimism um, uh, that um, in, a, in a given generation is the kinds of cultural products it's producing. And, um, and, and like the middle of the 20th century had, um, uh, had so much great, among other things, great sci-fi. Um, uh, like all the classics of um, sci-fi and kind of tech utility. Twilight, Twilight Zone, is that what you mean? <laughs> totally. Um, uh, yeah, and and um, Star Trek and 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 all kinds of um, uh, futuristic, often utopian writing about the pe- potential of, of technology and conquering the stars. Like all of that came out of the middle of the twentieth century. Um, China now produces great, uh, great sci-fi literature. Um, we produce almost none. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there are other measures of the level of hope and optimism of a, of a, um, uh, given, uh, generational cohort, but how would you describe, um, my generation? Like, what's your sense of us? Well, firstly, since you referred to the science fiction and visions of technology, uh, you know, back in the post-World War II era, it just happens. I've gone back and I was, I've been, I've been looking at a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. And so what's very interesting about uh, the work that was done, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it begins to change in the 70s, is that uh, they had, you know, all kinds of ideas about the, the changes that science and technology would bring. But they expected science and technology to change, but not that they would really change, not that society would really change, that that human relationships would change. Totally. The, the futuristic sci-fi vision was basically a, a, an American liberal one. Mm-hmm. Like we would we would conquer the stars with um, with capitalist democracy. Right. And so and also, if you look at at just you know, the characters and images um, there of typically white men and women who are dressed in kind of futuristic ways, but they're basically in the same kinds of roles as existed at that time. So they just, they, they, they had this idea of change that would be fantastic and, you know, and on, on the whole, very hopeful and positive, 
there, there were dystopian images too, but 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 there was more of a positive emphasis, but just not that it would it affect them very deeply. And now I think it's impossible to think about about the future that way. It's impossible just to believe that it would bring more and better because there's something very unsettling about what's happening. I mean, think of all the fears now around artificial intelligence. Totally. Just to put my question back to you once, though, um, what what are like the adjectives and, and to put you on the spot, maybe like what are the adjectives you'd use to describe people my age? And their sensibility. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any any simple description. And um, uh, I just. You know, uh, I think we're 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 counting on you. <laughs> we're counting on you because so many things haven't worked out. So many of the things that we were once hopeful about haven't worked out. And so it's going to be your generation that has to figure out the answers. I'm going to take this issue about, you know, artificial intelligence. Take the questions, all these questions about technology and its really frightening possibilities now. I mean, we're, we're not going to be able to do without science and technology if we're going to deal with climate change. Obviously, we need technological innovation. But at the same time, I think the anxieties around the technology are just are, 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 are cutting very deep. Totally. Actually, um, one of the um, biggest and most surprising differences between um, the student movement of the 60s and students today is that one thing that's completely dropped out of the there's tons of great critiques of technology by young people right now. Something that's completely dropped out of the conversation is the anti-nuclear movement. Um, I mean, you go, you read uh Whatever. A lot of kids my age were radicalized reading Chomsky, but Chomsky is just about the last public intellectual on the left who's still worried about nuclear proliferation. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, nuclear um, arms, um, uh, whether or not, you know, it's completely dry. Don't seem to matter to students. On the other hand, there's um, there's fortunately, I think, a burgeoning. A set of young people interested in um, in nuclear power, which is overdue, and and maybe one of the massive mistakes of the anti nuclear movement was um, was overstating the harms and risks of nuclear power. So uh, yeah, it's funny that you should bring up this issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, I kind of grew up in the in the anti nuclear movement. <laughs> uh, my mother was an activist in something called the SANE Nuclear Committee. One of the leaders also of another group called Women's Strike for Peace. These were groups in the 1950s and 1960s. I was like when I was nine or 10 years old, handing out leaflets about radiation, about strontium-90. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, this, this was, if there was one fear, in the post-war era that the whole generation feared. It was fear about the bomb. It was the fear that had us doing uh, fallout shelter drills and diving under desks and so forth. So this was a, this was a, the single most troubling aspect of that, of that whole period. And, um, you know, and, Sure, it hasn't gone away. I mean, it seemed to go away with the end of the Cold War. The 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 most immediate threat of mutual assured destruction seemed to be off the table. But now again, with the Russian war in Ukraine, with China turning uh, more nationalistic, um, it seems like we're perhaps going into an era not so different from the Cold War. And people are again worried about the potential that nuclear bombs would actually be used. And, and so in a sense, this is a kind of full circle uh, in our experiences. And in that sense, our generations are closer together 
Yeah. And of course, my instinct is to blame uh, the U.S. for uh, accelerating our um, uh, our entrance into this new or second Cold War, which is uh, uh, maybe um, maybe a function of my uh, youth and American centrism <laughs> uh, and, and the tendency of young people to blame in, in the U.S. to blame the American empire for everything um, and read American politics onto the world. But OK, well, we, 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 we could definitely have a debate about that. Um, Okay, but wait, to take up something you had said um, earlier, um, you when when you were touching on um, the the victories won by um, the women's movement and the movement for racial justice in the 60s, I don't know if it would have been framed that way, but uh, you used a a really sharp word, which is humiliation. Um, and you, you, I think you said something like, you know, um, uh, kind of identity categories were the basis for a lot of the, um, injustices and, and, um, and grievances that people had because they, they weren't, uh, you know, humiliated on the basis of their class or, or so much as they, uh, or maybe that had been overstated, um, so much as they were humiliated on the basis of these, um, identity categories and i think that's totally true and the 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 um the airing of those grievances and the recognition of them as legitimate is 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 progress of a sort uh but um but my feeling 50 years later on a college campus is that um uh that it's a kind of pyrrhic victory just to have articulated those grievances i mean it's worse than a pyrrhic victory in that uh if you think that there's been a real turn towards um, towards like kind of token representation of those groups in position positions of power without kind of concrete economic gains. But setting that aside, uh, yes, of course, it's true that people are humiliated on the basis of all kinds of identity categories. But the question to me is how you build a movement with shared solidarity. And so with, so 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 identity is a problem to be overcome. But but then you have the whole problem of mobilizing for concrete gains still ahead of you. So I, to put it more succinctly, I guess like um, yeah, when union when you have incredibly racist unions uh, that treat black workers as a second tier um, and as 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 strike breakers and as uh, or, or, or black workers are used by management as stra- strike breakers and there's all kinds of racism that's fomented within unions by management. That's an enormous problem to solve. Uh, great that that um, uh, that it's addressed actually earlier and you know, becomes becomes a big part of the conversation in the civil rights movement. Um, but merely airing uh, race and and gender and uh, <clears throat> sexual identity grievances seems to me like uh, um, only the start, and it was like a false start uh, in in the 1960s, and maybe because of the failure of more radical movements. By the time I got to college in um, uh, in 2016, um, it felt like a whole a, a, a conversation in which um, uh, c- capital had completely co opted those uh, those debates and. Um, and and there was very little basis for shared leftist organizing and solidarity. It had, it had caused people to, as I said, turn inwards <laughs> um, and focus more on their own personal experiences than on collective struggle. Okay, I think I agree with you, like maybe three quarters of the way. <laughs> and um, uh, but I don't think it can be fairly said that those movements just aired grievances. They brought about real change. And some of that change may just be taken for granted now, but there were fundamental and important changes that came out about as a result of, uh, of those movements. And, and also, by the way, real changes affecting economic opportunity and security, um, th- really for, for black people, for women, for gays, huge changes. Uh, that that uh, uh, have made a real difference for people uh, over this time. However, however, when you talk about solidarity, when you talk about like you know sharing of positions, well, that it's true. There's been a problem because identity uh, identity politics has no limiting principle. When do you put it aside <laughs> and join together? And 
one of the difficulties coming out of that whole period is that, yeah, we had all these movements, so many movements, that there was no one movement. There was, it became very difficult to establish um, solidarity. It became very difficult also to make a credible claim to represent America as a whole. And that is absolutely necessary in politics. Just can't win uh, solely on the basis of fractions. You have to be able to add those fractions up and speak on behalf of the whole country. And, and I think that had, you know, that clearly became a problem. And conservatives, um, even though really they represented very narrow interests, they were able to make more credible claims to stand for the country as a whole. And um, that's something we've been dealing with now for decades. So we should come back to generations. <laughs> and, you know, there are political generations. And I think we've been partly talking about that. Um, there are uh, technological generations. <laughs> So that post-war generation was a generation that grew up with television. And the more recent generations, internet, social media, and uh, that adjustment, um, you know, has been very difficult coming out of one era and going into another, trying to understand how people are, here we are, we're involved in the whole world of journalism that has been to a large extent, decimated by technological change in the last couple of decades. Um, uh, when you talk about economic opportunity, well, how about economic opportunity for journalists? Well, that it's just, you know, it, it, this was one of the unexpected aspects of this transformation. This wasn't supposed to happen, <laughs> uh, uh, that it'd be more difficult um, uh, to sustain um, uh, newspapers and magazines and the kind of enterprises uh, you know that uh, that we're involved in. So um, so you know that's a good that's another aspect of this whole generational issue. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, both of those technological developments that you mentioned, TV and um, and social media, seem um, pretty uniformly bad. Um, like, I don't know that either generation was better off for having those things. Um, and there were a lot of, I, well, I'm curious if there were like utopian or, 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 or leftist projections around the advent of TV, but, uh, certainly like there were all kinds of aspirations for how the internet and later social media could, um, could be a, a platform for political, but for, 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 first of all, in the nineties, the internet was, the information highway was thought of, of as this completely utopian transformation that would end nation states and create sort of global democracy and the freeing of, of information that it represented. Um, uh, you know, these kids in Silicon Valley were like, um, tripping acid and, and talking about how, um, uh, the internet would make the nation state obsolete. Uh, in 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 beautiful ways where you can sort of see where they were coming from, and then and then uh, we got sort of uh, monopolistic capitalism uh, reproduced partly because of the kind of natural monopoly, um, I think, structure of uh, of some internet platforms, um, and then there was similarly um, utopian projections about like in the Arab Spring what. Um, uh, how how um, the internet and like Twitter would be a force for liberalization and democracy, and I think those also um, proved to be massively disappointed to the disappointing to the the liberals who predicted it. Um, but uh, I don't know. We're um, uh, what was the feeling? I mean, the TV arrived in like the American living room during this period in the fifties of. Um, of stability. And so it seems to me, if anything, like a cultural homogenizer that communicated through advertising and, and, and sitcoms and stuff, what every family should look like and probably made, I don't know, this is my like mad men kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, reductive stereotype of what the TV meant, but, but it probably, um, made people pretty low grade depressed about how their lives didn't live up to this, uh, this, 
this fantasy that was brought into the, their living rooms. But were there ever any like left wing fantasies about what the TV could um, could could bring to American life? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, there was a feeling about both radio when it first developed in the 20s, 1920s, and television in the 1950s and 60s. There were ideas about cultural democracy. Uh, that was very strong in Britain with the, with the BBC, uh, that uh, broadcasting would make it possible uh, to... Uh, bring into uh, the living rooms of people, um, art and culture, which had been limited to the elite. And so there was a whole kind of populist justification and rhetoric uh, that surrounded uh, both radio and television. Now, it's true that, as you're saying, they were homogenizing. Uh, they were instruments for creating national cultures. And uh, they uh, were also means of uh, limiting uh, uh, dissenting viewpoints, uh, preventing them from getting access to what became such you know, powerful means of communication. And it was precisely the centralizing, homogenizing tendencies of television that led to so much hope for the internet. I mean, the internet was going to break up that whole pattern. And um, you look back at what people were writing in the 80s and 90s, first um, really more among uh, a limited group of people um, uh, uh, who, who correctly saw the potential of those technologies. Um, you know, but they were they were thinking of them as ways of of breaking down um, patterns of control. They were thinking of the technologies as means of liberation. And really in the 90s, you know, before um, the development of the kind of big choke points that emerged with Google and with Apple and, you know, social media and so forth. But, but you know, at first it really did look like things were moving in that direction, opening, opening up communication to people who never had the opportunity, um, who had been excluded uh, from the big networks, the TV networks and, and other, you know, the movie studios and, uh, and, 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 you know, the big newspaper chains and so forth. So, hey, hey, it really did look like that. And if we were back at that time, we would have, we could have had a real argument <laughs> about this. And, you know, if you took the point of view, oh, this is not going to work out. It's all going to end up centralized just the way these other media have been. God, you would have been seen as such a, a, a downer. <laughs> oh, come on. Can't you, can't you, you know, accept the huge, wonderful possibilities of this new medium? So, um, yeah, there were, uh, there, there should have been more skepticism. And in retrospect, and here we are just really, two decades later, two, three decades later. And, and this is you know, one of the greatest disappointments of the past century. The hopes that were invested were, were really genuine and, and really did have some foundation to begin with. And so understanding why that didn't work out, what went wrong, is I think really an important task uh, we really, we really need to understand what happened, and was it necessary? Did it have to work out this way? Um, and um, and so anyway, that's another question I've I've wrestled with for a while. Great. Well, um, we I feel like this has just been the start of an interesting conversation about um, the the differences in our generations and, and the similarities, but what, um, what questions are you coming away with or, or what, um, uh, what has this made you more curious about, more optimistic about? I feel like it's had kind of maybe because I said young people are so alienated and antisocial and hopeless. It's been kind of downcast, but um, what, what excites you and what are you curious about? Well, actually I have, I have a, a, a question for you, Lee, because that, note of pessimism that you sounded 
um, to some extent surprises me because um, I think of the most pessimistic group in America today being people on the right who really think that the country is being taken away from them. They hate the cultural changes, the demographic changes that are taking place. And um, so, you know, there's been a lot of evidence from surveys. People on the right are the most pessimistic about the American future. So I didn't quite expect that you would see it that way. Well, are are they wrong? Um, uh, are are um, young, angry, rural white men wrong that um, that they're the losers of of the past fifty years of globalization and of um, are they wrong in fact that the country is being taken away from them? I mean, um, uh, if if they're the most pessimistic group, the most optimistic group, in, including of young people, must be. Uh, recent immigrants. Um, and I'm, I'm basically in favor of, um, you know, as much immigration as, as, uh, as is feasible, which at the moment politically is not very much at all. Um, but, uh, so, so I think immigrants are the most uh, remain bullish on, on the American dream. And, and they also have, um, a huge amount to, to deliver in terms of American growth and dynamism. But I think, um, I share the pessimism of of, uh, of um, white conservatives <laughs> um, about their position, um, and I think uh, we, we um, the left isn't offering a convincing answer um, to uh, to especially that that cohort of um, young, angry, disillusioned white men, which is why working class men, which is why they're being hemorrhaged to the right. Yeah, of you course, know, they don't necessarily have to identify in the way they're identifying. Um, for example, um, small towns that have had new immigrants arrive, very likely to be Latino, um, sometimes Asian. Um, they're doing much better. Totally. So exclusive this community. So it's it's really not in their interest, in the interest of those rural conservatives, to react in that exclusive anti-immigrant way. You know, they'd be better off. There'd be more jobs in their communities if they welcomed them. But I think just um, the same people who have uh, who have overseen the decline of American or the, 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 shall we say, leveling off of American growth and dynamism, now the same class of elites turning around to browbeat these um this new reactionary set for their um uh for their xenophobia or their their opposition to conditions that that you're arguing might benefit them um uh i i'd resent that if 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 i were you know a a, a guy in a small town and um and there's a there are very low levels of um of trust in the set of elites that uh, that brought about that transition, and and all that elites seem to be offering them in practice is 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 scolding and asking them to change their attitudes rather than offering them different conditions. Now, Biden, I think, represents um, both a source of legitimate optimism and then also a, a, a kind of set of risky bets on on on, um, on greater nationalism rather rather than greater openness. On one hand. Um, Biden's trying to reinvest in these communities and some of his domestic investments represent, uh, you know, follow on, build on um, both uh, mostly Trumpian rhetoric, but also on um, some attempts by the Trump administration to rebuild um, uh, those areas. Um, and so um, maybe those new domestic investments are a source for uh for for greater trust in the policy establishment if they deliver. On the other hand, um, Biden's whole bet has been um, on a more uh, national, at least regionalistic and really nationalistic turn. Um, Biden hasn't been a great champion of immigration for those small towns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, look, I mean, I think. Um, uh, Democrats have to do the best they can on policy. 
still, I'm not sure that policy is really going to make that much of a difference in the political views. Um, it's it's the best we can do, uh, uh, but you know it may not really have an impact on these really deep seated um, uh, aspects of identity. We're now so geographically divided. Um, the rural urban differences uh, in politics have actually never been as sharp in the past as they are now. And uh, and we it's 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 we we've had this um, hyper concentrated development, you know, concentrated in metropolitan areas. In fact, in just some metropolitan areas, not even all metropolitan areas, and that kind of unbalanced uh, growth uh, has has had terrible consequences uh, for the country, and and we need somehow to figure our way out of this and and redistribute growth uh more widely uh but you know i think that's more likely to happen as a result of democratic policies industrial policies and other policies than it is likely to happen as a result of republican free market policies so i think i think we're we're on the right side on this even if even if we're not reaping the political gains that I think rationally ought to follow. Great. Um, well, more to say, but maybe that's a good end point. Yes. So that's our first podcast in the Generation Series. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Paul. This was a blast. Okay. All right. Bye.